This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Radio Therapy. Dr Nick here, sitting in... Hi everybody! And Hi Dr Nick! Dr Malpractice, who is at this very moment sunning himself somewhere in downtown Italy... Uh, well, actually, that's probably not true, is it? Because it's one o'clock in the morning there. Um, anyway, we have a very special show for you today uh, with three very special guests. Dr Jenny is a social worker and psychotherapist who boasts a whole range of expertise, amongst which are EMDR and pet therapy, of which more in a moment. Jenny, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Nick. Thank you. And alongside her, we have a regular contributor to Triple R, one of radio's great iconoclasts, EpiPen. EpiPen is a research nurse, epidemiologist, epistemologist, and just about every other ologist, uh, except for geologist. Uh, from breasts to brains, EpiPen has some fascinating stuff for us today. So thanks for being here again, EpiPen. Thank you, Dr. Nick. And what would radiotherapy be without at least one psychiatrist in the studio? Well, fortunately, that question can remain rhetorical, as we have one. Yes, Junior is with us again, bringing, him, bringing with him a depth of experience and knowledge that belies his name. So much so that he's actually decided to trade up. So welcome, Dr. Moto. Thank you, Nick. Pleasure to be here. It won't have escaped your notice that uh, today is, in fact, Mother's Day. Uh, and Dr. Jenny is one of the two mothers here. I'm sure you were inundated with flowers and chocolates before you left home this morning. I left my 19-year-old in bed <laughs> after a very late night home, and uh, the dog wagged his tail, Nick. That was my happy Mother's Day. So I'm sure it'll all be waiting for you when you get home. What about you, EpiPen? I got a text from my daughter just a few minutes ago. So I'm thrilled, and my son, forget it. (laughs) 17-year-old. But I want to pause for a moment. I want to think about what this day means for those people who don't have a mother, people whose mothers have died, perhaps, or they're estranged, or maybe they never knew their birth mothers. Uh, I work in general practice, and I was prompted to think about this because when we were finishing work on Friday, uh, one of my receptionists commented how she had mixed feelings about this weekend because her mother had died, uh, as it happens, of ovarian cancer. So Mother's Day wasn't easy for her. Um, so, Dr. Moto, I just wonder what your thoughts were about this complex emotion that we might have for the, a day like Mother's Day. Well, I think it's a day that means um, something different for everybody, clearly. Um, There are um, people who um, identify their primary caregivers as not actually being their mothers necessarily also. So I think um, on a day like today, um, in a diverse um, environment and diverse uh, social environment that we live in, you know, I think uh, Mother's Day um, is time to play a tribute and um, appreciation to um, those that are closest to our hearts. Not necessarily mothers, but it also could also be um, mother-like people that have uh, made um, a significant um, contribution to our formative years and who we are as people. Yeah, but names matter, don't they? It's not called Mothers and Significant Others Day. No, that's right. EpiPen. Um, I was just thinking about the commercialisation of it, though. Sometimes that grates for me that shops are cashing in on, you know, Mother's Day specials and encouraging us to spend, spend, spend. What what are your thoughts? It didn't encourage your son to spend, 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 (laughs) did it? (laughs) No. uh, Well, I went to Myers yesterday (laughs) to buy a a jumper for my 89-year-old mother, and uh, there were everywhere sales sales buy your mum this buy your mum that and i thought oh i couldn't wait to get out of there i couldn't help but notice the happy mother's day um mud cake at uh woolworth's yesterday i can't imagine that would be very healthy for one's mother Mm. (laughs) one day a year I think, I think it's okay for her to have, um, for us to have a chocolate cake on, on uh, one day a year. I, I agree, Penny. I think the commercialisation is really awful. But I have to say, having dismissed Mother's Day, you know, all my life as a, before I had children, um, and even when they were little really, apart from those gorgeous, you know, school functions where they'd come home with something special they'd found at a, you know, at the fate for you, which somehow, you know, it might be a little bag of something that they wanted, like a bag of chocolates, but somehow they thought, you know, that would be lovely 
for you. So my, my attitude to um, you know the gift giving has changed somewhat. Yeah, which yeah. is all very well, you see, because you are a mother and you have someone to give you the gifts. Mm. But what I want to think about is people who don't have mothers to give gifts to. I mean, we've we've changed this culture in schools. So you know, they no longer have um, you know bring a parent's day. They have bring a parent or significant other or grandparent or your neighbour's dog day. Um, we're recognising that this is a tricky area for lots of people, and yet somehow with Mother's Day and Father's Day, that's that's been ignored. I think it's not just the absence of a mother, but it's when that relationship between you and your mother, or indeed as a mother, you and your child, is not what it's meant to be. And, you know, motherhood and the relationship between mothers and children is, is both sort of idealised on the one hand, um, and on the other, you know, who wants to be like their mother, so kind of denigrated. And I think this is a very vexed relationship, actually, in reality, between mothers and children often, fathers and children too, of course, but certainly in my practice... I do a lot of work with mothers and daughters where that relationship is not what each of them expect it's supposed to be and where it's been challenged by all sorts of difficulties, both from within the relationship and outside. And have you come across any way that those people manage uh, transition times, like Mother's Day, in a healthier way? Well, I think they often trigger um, distress for people because of that assumption that it's meant to be, you know, this this wholesome, close relationship. And um, so firstly, being able to understand the context of your relationship and the things that have formed it, you know, from, in terms of therapy, is really helpful for people. That it's actually not just about them as good mothers or daughters, but actually it's about the impacts on their relationship that's formed this relationship. And that um, being able to begin to kind of, I, I suppose, share those experiences from each side of it as a start. I suppose from my point of view, I, I, I worry about people who are forgotten, who are, who are left out, and I, I come back to the name side of things. I wonder how much difference it might make um, if we didn't just call it Mother's Day, if we did change it um, so that it wasn't, uh, I'm not quite sure what we'd call it, but you know, if it was mothers and significant others. I think that sort of rhymes together. What about Father's Day, fathers and farters or something? <laughs> <laughs> because I know we've got neighbours who their dad does of a melanoma and they've been fatherless for you know 18 years and they have significant others that take them out or do things with them but there isn't sort of like mothers and others it's catchy fathers and something else well we've got three months to work out something okay. nice and rhyming or initiative <laughs> with fathers i think the name needs to stay otherwise there'll be too much overlap um there's mother's day already father's day in certain countries and cultures there's uh, also children's day as well um so the children are being celebrated um and then you know and, and um as we know in north america they have uh, thanksgiving where it's really just a family day as well so um if we sort of uh, change mother's day's name around too much i think there'll be too much uh, overlap and it'll just be one big venn diagram day. <laughs> <laughs> good point I, I like the idea of venn diagram There's something geometrically appealing about that wednesday three times a year <laughs> <laughs> it comes just before thursday <laughs> Um, but I want to go back to my receptionist, you know, with her. her it, it wasn't agonising. I could just see there was this little dark cloud passing over her on Friday night, looking forward to this weekend where everybody else was a bit upbeat, talking about whether they bought the flowers or the chocolates or that sort of thing. Um, I still feel concerned about that sense of being left out and, and, and the loss in some senses being increased by this experience. You know, Nick, I was just reflecting on that as I was listening to you because, you know, I grew up without a father. My, my parents divorced when I was very, very young and I can remember those school... Um, uh the um, the fates, you know, where people were buying their Father's Day presents and feeling quite alienated, and and yet I've lost my mum. My mum died two years ago, and I was trying to think about what's the difference in that for my experience. And I think there's something about the meaning of that to us, whether this is some kind of traumatic loss, or whether or not it, we incorporate that as some sense of, you know, the cycle of life and um, the way in which we've resolved that loss. I think of my mum today, and I have a laugh, and I, you know, I would. I would call my siblings and we'll remember over lunch some of the um you know daggy and fun things and i'll be you know feel blessed about my mum's role in my life but um very different from what my experience was of not having a father at father's day so i think the meaning is really quite important to people 
And what you're saying is you've been able to synthesize some of that meaning, make sense of it, and mm. come to terms with it. And mm. I guess there'd still be quite a lot of people out there where that doesn't apply. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but before we go to the break, I want to lighten up a little bit because it'll get a little <laughs> bit gloomy. Um, we've got two mothers here now. For those people who haven't been out, they haven't bought the flowers, they haven't bought the chocolates, any tips? What, they sh- what should they be doing? Uh, uh, EpiPen, your wayward teenage son who's failed to get it, what should he whiz out and get for you that would lighten your heart and gladden you on Mother's Day? Some coloured pencils and paper and do those little gorgeous drawings that he did when he was little or just some words. He's a gorgeous uh, young man with beautiful words and he draws these funny pictures. That's all I want. I don't don't need flowers, I don't need chocolate cake, but some of his beautiful words would be inspirational for me and make me feel warm and fuzzy. I'm glad you went to the beautiful words. I was worried about you taking him back to cuddle pencils and papers, infantilising. You've got two psychotherapists sitting (laughs) here. He could get in real trouble with that one. <laughs> what about for you, Jenny? Um, I think my son's already given me um, what I needed. You know, it was not to wake me at four o'clock this morning when he came in, which is what he offered to do. So thank you, darling. <laughs> Being left to sleep in, I think Indeed. that's very wise. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, Dr. Moto, have you celebrated Mother's Day in some suitable fashion? Well, um, my mother actually lives overseas, and uh, right now she should deservingly be in bed because of the time difference. But uh, I'll certainly make a point of giving her a call. Um, we're still working on the FaceTime thing, but. Um, in the meantime, it would just have to be verbal communication. And as someone from the UK, I get stuck because I'm supposed to help my children remember the Australian Mother's Day, but then I get a little email or some sort of reminder from the UK that I've got to remember it for my 89-year-old mother back in the UK. So I have two every year I have to deal with, so have some sympathy if you could. All right, we'll be back after this break. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. So moving away from Mother's Day to perhaps slightly more esoteric matters, but I'm fascinated by the range of things that psychologists and therapists do with people these days. Uh, I also love a good acronym, and you don't get much better an acronym than EMDR. Dr. Jenny, what on earth is EMDR? Oh, my God. Thank God there's initials, because it sounds worse when you actually say what it stands for, which is eye movement, desensitisation and reprocessing. How about offering that to your clients, huh? I can just imagine. Yes, they'd be be going for crystal therapy and um, stargazing, I think. So tell us about EMDR. How does eye movement, desensitisation and reprocessing make any difference to matters psychological? Oh, goodness. It's always one of those things I say to my clients, this is going to sound like, um, you know, kind of crystals or something. You know, intuitively sounds like it's crazy. But um, just really briefly, it was um, a therapy that was kind of discovered accidentally by a woman named Francine Shapiro who walked walking through a park one day, um, thinking about something quite difficult in her own life, um, noticed that uh, as she was walking and her eyes were moving, that um, suddenly the feelings, of the distress kind of disappeared. And as a scientist, a psychologist, she became curious um, about what on earth was that about? And so she started um, experimenting with eye movements while thinking about distressing life experiences. And uh, that led her to develop a therapy that's um, now been subject to many, many um, studies that has been accepted by World Health Organization and other major um, professional associations and accreditations around the world. And um, really simply, what it's based on is an understanding that um, it's about the way in which distressing and traumatic memories get stored in our brain and that we, um, the brain has a great capacity for making sense of our experience and to take what's useful from it and then to to store the rest in our long-term memory um, or store it away to be forgotten forever. And uh, when those memories are stored um, in a faulty way because of traumatic experience, then they tend to be fragmented parts of experience that can then be triggered by a current um things that happen currently so if i'm in a car accident you know the the sounds the images the feelings the internal sensations all of those things will be stored in our brain in a way that uh, means they can be triggered by current circumstances that are not um relating to that that relate to that event just in that fragmented um experience so what emdr therapy does is um through the eye movements and through 
um, activating those memories, so the feelings associated with it in the body, the emotions, the images associated with the memory, and um, a protocol that includes a set of sets of eye movements, um, the client is able to go through a process where they make sense of those experiences and the brain seems able to um, ad- adaptively interpret them and to place them in long-term memory where they're no longer as responsive to distress. I love that description and uh, um, it all makes sense to me but I still don't quite get well let me let me backtrack I, is this particularly for traumatic experience for this sort of post-traumatic stress disorder PTSD type of problem it's uh, it's for both what we'd call big T trauma so you know combat veterans violence abuse um, near-death experiences but also what we would call small T trauma and so for example if I can if I can um, use the illustration of being being um, separated, left alone for 10 minutes in a busy shopping centre, you know, when you're 30, that you lose sight of your partner or your friend in a shopping centre, you manage that. If you're six and you lose sight of your caregiver in a shopping centre, that's very traumatic. And so big T trauma are those things that we would, we would all recognise as traumatic. The small T trauma is much more subjective and it's about our development, it's about the sense in which we that, that we made of that. Um, and so if a little child left alone, for example, you might take from that, nobody cares about me. Yes, so we start, we interpret these experiences and then that becomes um, stored in our memory as... Um, an event that then is confirmed by other things that happen to us. And so when we're alone at another time or someone's not there when we need them, it might well trigger that distress that's associated with no one cares about me. How long does a session go for, um, Dr Jenny? And and um, maybe can I get you to talk through what you do with the clients in a session and um, how the um, reprocessing and reprogramming actually works? Yeah, I'll try and do it in a really kind of simple way without without the technical aspects. But, you know, what it basically involves is that a client identifies a distressing, disturbing event in their life and we ask them to... We try to activate that memory by bringing up all of the relevant um, um, elements of that fragmented memory. So we ask them to think about the worst part of that event, an image that's associated with that, the... Um, Emotion that goes with it, fear or terror or sadness, whatever, anger, whatever that might be. The negative thought about themselves, so just like that example of the child with, you know, no one cares about me, we get stuck particularly when we take from an experience something that is a negative meaning about ourselves. I'm powerless, I'm unsafe, I'm going to die, no one loves me, those kinds of negative um, descriptions of ourselves. And um, we then get people to also notice what they would like to think now in that situation. I was just a kid or something about themselves. I was just a kid. It wasn't my fault. And then we notice the body, what's activated in the body. And then the eye movements. So people are... um, activating the memory they're experiencing some of the distress of the memory at the same time as they're staying present in the room with you so yeah so what do the eye movements do because i think this is the bit that people struggle with Mm. and and i I love this idea that a psychologist was walking through a park and she knew what her eyes were doing which made her think about this (laughs) i'm not sure i know where my eyes are going when i'm walking (laughs) hopefully on the path ahead but what does the eye movement side of it actually contribute to the therapy look we're still um there's still a lot of work to work out what the mechanisms are actually of what makes it um, uh, what, what makes it work. It's been um, identified as similar to REM sleep, so the eye movement that occurs in REM sleep when people are dreaming, and dreaming, as you know, you're probably aware, is a as a the brain's natural process of making sense of experience, of making associations between things that you know weird things in our dreams, but making associations between things that might be distant but actually quite relevant, and um, so the eye movements are seen to activate a process similar to REM sleep on the one hand. On the other, there are neurological explanations, Nick, that are, are much more complex but to do with the way in which the brain is activated during the fight-flight response, 
parts of the brain stem that um, you know the eyes apparently move um, when we are searching for danger and um, so uh, so an involuntary unconscious process of um, activating the brain's um, processes of looking for danger and then of making sense of that experience now let me let me play devil's advocate here because if i was a non-medical person listening to this i might be at this point thinking well you know it all sounds very theoretical and mm. i don't know is there any science to prove this because mm. we're all scientists here and we mm. need to know is this just one of those mumbo jumbo things that people think is a good idea because some cookie psychologist wandering through a park felt mm. better when she looked up mm. at a bird in the trees uh, is there any science to prove oh, this absolutely actually? I mean, I don't think the World Health Organization approves therapies that are, you know, kind of based on cookies. <laughs> Psychologists. Um, it's it's one of the most studied um, therapies because when it came out for those very good reasons, um, people were very, very sceptical about was this just somebody else, you know, promoting some wacky therapy. But um, um, no, that's not the case. And, um, you know, certainly if people want to have a look on at uh, the EMDR International website, um, they'll see lots of studies that are listed there um, and as I said the WHO have also um, talked about the fact that it's uh, an efficacious treatment for trauma. Uh, Dr Jenny um, what's the sort of success rate is there known about this treatment? Um, it's look I don't have the, the figures in front of me but um, you know if, if, it's, if the protocol is followed and there are you know eight steps to um, the EMDR protocol so if all of those steps are followed um, it's so that means eight visits to the no therapist. no it uh, no it can be sorry I didn't answer your question about how long it takes look each session takes sort of 60 to 90 minutes but depending on what the client brings with them and their previous capacity to manage distress it can take a couple of sessions or it can take quite considerable time so if you've had a long history of neglect and abuse then on trauma then your ability just to manage powerful feelings is clearly going to be different from someone who has had a very secure upbringing who's had a single trauma so if you've had a you know a, a pretty relatively safe life with a good internalized sense of yourself and you have a single trauma then you're probably going to be able to process that pretty easily in a session or two um, but if you've had a much more many adverse experiences um, and your capacity for managing distress in the moment um is more difficult because of course what you don't want to do when someone's thinking about a traumatic experience is to re-traumatize them you don't want them to be so overwhelmed by the emotions associated with that memory that it in itself becomes re-traumatizing that's not therapy is it and so um the relationship between the therapist and the client and in those eight steps much of what we do in the beginning is actually to assess what um, resources the client has and the ways in which we might actually build up their capacity build up their resources to manage the processing whether that's internal resources or whether it's external friends family um, you know other people strategies that might assist them to get through those that that period of processing the memory it ties in quite well with um what i was uh, going to present a bit later on in the show about re-traumatizing and um this uh, practice called uh, critical incident stress debriefing and uh, how that may cause uh, more harm than good but before going on to that um there is definitely an evidence base for EMDR and uh, specifically for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it's also a practice that's um, acknowledged and um, supported by um, psychiatrists as well. Um, what I am curious about, though, is uh, how come there hasn't been more uptake of it? And um, it's quite hard for um, uh, patients to access it. Um, it's quite well known amongst psychiatry circles and psychology circles, in other words, but um, there just doesn't seem to be very many people doing it. Yes, it's interesting because I went to the States last year um, for an EMDR conference and, you know, I think one of the best conferences I've been to ever professionally and it is huge over there, many practitioners. I think um, one of the reasons that um, there isn't a lot of uptake is that 
the training, you have to be accredited to be a trainer. And again, this was part of the issue with Shapiro, her her um, desire to keep this as a, um, a scientific process that, that you know, had an evidence base versus getting it out there. And so you have to be accredited to be a consultant, then accredited to be, to be a trainer. The training itself is in two levels and you're often warned off in the first level about not re-traumatising people. So I think there's a big dropout rate once people actually start to practice as well that you really need um, support around you and good supervision actually. And uh, Dr Jenny, for those who are listening who think, you know, that sounds like me, I could do with some help like that, where should people go to find information about where they can get help with the EMDR? If um, if they go to the EMDR Association here in Australia, just Google that and you'll find a website that has consultants and therapists listed. But you're not just an EMDR person. And um, coming back to Mother's Day, the nice soft, soft side of life, uh, the other thing that you're interested in and that you're training in or uh, now fully trained, I'm not sure, is pet therapy. So tell me a bit about that. Yes. Um, they relate, actually, the EMDR and the... and the We call it animal-assisted therapy um, because they're, they're working dogs, even though they might also be pets. Um, and... Animal-assisted therapy, for me, has been transformative to my practice, interestingly. You know, I'm a family therapist, an individual therapist. I've been conducting therapy for, you know, 25, 30 years. And uh, for the last four years, I went back to kind of beginner's school with my spoodle named Momo. (laughs) um, Because... Um, sort of for many reasons. We got a dog and I didn't want to leave him at home. I thought that was, you know, not the best thing for a dog to do and I had been interested in how we might incorporate animals into therapy. And so... Um there's a number of ways in which having a dog, and I can only talk about dogs, there's other kinds of animal-assisted therapy. There's equine, there's the use of small animals like, you know, guinea pigs and rabbits and the like. But in terms of dogs... Um, you know, dogs are very special in um, the human-animal bond. We have many people have a particular bond with dogs, and look. In short, they've been found to enhance engagement. You know, research shows that people seeing a therapist with a dog think that the therapist is more friendly <laughs> than, than those without. Um, they, I, I, I use him in many ways, not just engagement. I actually got him because I thought he'd be great with kids. But adults love him. And my trauma clients, we use him to help calm them during moments of activation. So patting a dog has been shown to reduce stress hormones, so the cortisol levels go down, and to increase oxytocin, which is that bonding um, hormone that's that's related to um, um, enhancing trust. Does that mean anyone who goes to a pet therapist ends up lactating? (laughs) Well, you're the doctor, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious to know whether dog therapy works with people who are not naturally dog lovers. Well, it's interesting. I He's in my room with me all the time, and I warn people before they come. And some pet times people will say, I'm, oh, look, I'm, you know, I'm not big on dogs, but that's fine. Leave him there. And um, you observe this relationship that um, it's a relationship and uh, that begins to happen. And for some people, they will simply allow him to sit in the corner. For other people who have thought that they really didn't want him involved, you know, he ends up sitting on their lap as they begin to engage with him. He's pleased to see them. Mm. He gets to know them. And, I, you know, while I might say to my clients, oh, hello, nice to see you, that means nothing to a dog running up, wagging his tail, wanting a pat, going to get the toy that he used last time, and showing them that he remembers them and that he enjoys them being there. And I think for many of my clients, that's worth me. Well, I couldn't agree more. And so a tip for those out there looking for some therapy, look for someone who's also got an animal in the room <laughs> at the same time. Three. Triple. And now, uh, in the chair before the microphone, uh, we have the um, ever, ever, ever vescent uh, EpiPen, um, who's going to talk to us a little bit today about both breasts and brains. So I'm not sure where you'd like to start, Penny. Um, I think I'll start with brain cancers, sadly, sadly, Mm. sadly. But um, Carrie Bickmore mentioned these and paid tribute to them at a recent um, television award night, and her husband husband died of a malignant brain cancer when they'd had a small child and so I just 
have done a little bit of reading about what's brain cancer and different types. So there's sort of different ones between children and adults and the medulloblastoma ones are the more common ones in children and then in adults are gliomas. And then the most malignant ones in adults are called glioblastoma, which I'm assuming Carrie Bickmore's husband had. And the incidence of uh, malignant brain tumours are about 8 per 100,000 per per, per per population per year and slightly more common in men and there are approximately 1,700 new cases per year in Australia so these are serious sad and terrible conditions and um, just speaking to a friend of mine who's a neuropathologist at the Royal Melbourne he said that they probably see about three a week of these um, quite significant brain tumours and currently there's no really um, good effective treatment for glioblastoma so they're the malignant ones in adults and the standard treatment still radiation and chemotherapy with a mean survival of 16 to 18 months 16 to 18 months well mm-hmm. um, some can be more lucky and um, there's uh, a surgeon in uh, New South Wales um, who takes a bit more risks with some of these cancers and um, he's very popular it's at Charlie T.O. Um, but the, so one of, one of the things that people always want to know about is uh, what can cause these um, kinds of terrible tumours, and is is mobile a uh, mobile phones a problem? And well, that's the that's the thing that everybody talks about, isn't it? And sure. we've seen study after study about mobile phones. So now here on Triple R, we're going to hear the definitive answer: Does using a mobile phone give you a risk of brain cancer? EpiPen. We're not sure. No. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not, because then we'd all have brain cancers because we're on them so often. Um, very hard to test, very hard to put up a study, very hard to have a control group. So that's a comparison group of people that are not on phones versus people that are using them a lot. Um, and I think we've had different sort of theories about using um, microphones that are down a, a cord and away from your brain. and But... Sadly, there's nothing really that's um, coming out in the literature about that that issue. Uh, petrochemical exposure, again, that might be also another risk factor. So petrochemical exposure, meaning what, using lip balm or filling up your car at the petrol pump? What, what do we mean by petrochemical exposure? Um, uh, petrol derivatives in uh, fuel and chemicals like that, I think. <laughs> just, probably didn't Google that one a bit better than I should. I should have Googled it a bit better than I did. Um, so research areas, so there's sort of, we're looking at uh, glioma, uh, stem cells and um, genetic changes in DNA in the tumours. There are some tests where you can identify the type of DNA of that brain tumour and what sorts of chemotherapy agents will work on that particular tumour and the chemotherapy regimes are based on often based on the genetic changes Um, and there's some new drugs coming out in Europe and North America but these are going to be incredibly expensive so some of the new drugs in cancer therapy are costing people and I think everybody's well aware that um, the Federal Minister Susan Lay is considering all these sorts of extra funding for treatments for melanomas and they're going to be incredibly expensive. Um, and EpiPen, of course, the treatment is critical once you've got one of these things. I think what most of us who hopefully don't have one at the moment would want to know, is there anything we can do to, um, besides putting aside the mobile phone, because we don't know for certain, is there anything else we can do to prevent brain cancer, or is it just one of those things that happens? Uh, from my reading, I think it's just one of those things that happen, and I think you need to be a bit aware of some of the signs and symptoms, so things like severe headache, and um, visual disturbances and anything sort of that feels a bit unusual for you, run them past your GP and um, try and make sense of them. Maybe you might need some extra investigations, MRIs and some CT scans, but um, really share that information and your concern with your med- medical practitioners. I'm going to give you a... a, a like <laughs> a, Dr Nick. Yeah, well, as a general practitioner myself, if everyone with a headache and a bit of visual disturbance came to me wanting an MRI. I don't think we'd have much space in the MRI machines for the next decade. Um, I think one of the things that is important with the headache 
mistakes that come on uh, that can come on with brain tumors it's very different from the ordinary headache you can wake up with in the morning it tends to be a very persistent headache that yes, doesn't definitely. respond to medication and uh, is slowly and relentlessly progressing with time rather than the on and off headache that comes with for instance migraine or um, or with uh, meningitis or meningitis that they need to, a differential diagnosis yeah. not to mention uh, I mean you know one of the first uh, imaging um, screening tools you'll use to diagnose uh, a brain tumor um, certainly in the primary care setting would be um, a CT brain with contrast and you know we have to bear in mind also it's an it's an investigation that in itself can um, you know um, expose one's brain to radiation and um, cause these nasty tumours. But And I think in um, your um, field, Dr Moto, is um, people with some severe mental health issues that present that you'd like to make sure that they don't have a brain tumour or some a different problem sort of at the brain level rather than... Uh, mental disorder absolutely so it's part of the uh, organic screening that we do um, for people who particularly present with um, a delirium type picture a psychosis type picture or a manic type picture um, because it is an important um, contributor to rule out um, what i find interesting about the um, electromagnetic radiation causation issue is it's being floated around for decades you know for a very long time and um, yes because of the um the study of uh, the, the the nature of the studies that need to be conducted to um, definitively rule it in or rule it rule it out is so difficult to um, instigate. We have no clear data as yet. But um, even um, irrespective of that, recently I'm talking in the last few months, there's been um, these YouTube videos being floated around. I don't know if any of you guys have seen them. Where um, no, we do, we've got better things to do than watch YouTube all day, uh, Doctor Moto. I can assure you this is um, outside of my work hours <laughs> and. Um, they have uh, a group of about um, four to six people sitting together with their mobile phones um, uh, put close, um, placed closely together in a circle, and then they'd ring them all at once. In the middle of this um, circle of mobile phones, they put one um, corn kernel. And then when um, all the phones start ringing, in about 10 to 20 seconds, it'll become popcorn presumably because of all the oh, radiation yes, yes, that's being emitted. Yes. Have you seen that? Yes, I have seen it. Yeah. Freaky. Hoax or real? Not sure. Yeah. Well, they do, we've always had this thing about you should turn off your mobile phone at the petrol station, and uh, a certain TV program tested that by doing exactly this, by taking a half dozen mobile phones and putting them around some petrol and then ringing them all at once and... Nothing happened. I think that was didn't a even didn't even create popcorn. Yeah, I think that was a MythBusters, and yeah. yes, it was busted. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do, before we leave brain tumors, I think we should probably be a little less scared about the mobile phone thing. I mean, I think what Dr. Moto has correctly said is there's been an awful lot of study, and we have failed to prove any connection between mobile phone use and brain tumor. It is very very hard scientifically to prove a negative, but I think to a certain amount of reassurance for our listening audience that mobile phones probably not quite as scary as maybe some of this conversation makes it seem but i want to move on um heading down south um uh, uh, about half a meter or maybe a little little more to from brains to breasts <laughs> um Penny, Epipen, you've got some uh, interesting stuff for us about well, breasts. Yes, it was just I wanted to discuss that with the um, very fine group that I'm with this morning about um, an article in Thursday's Age about breast cancer and the possibility that we're over-investigating and over-treating women with um, sort of possibly some indolent cancers. So these are... Sorry, sorry, what's an indolent cancer? A snoozy cancer, one that might be there that's not going to cause cause much trouble down the track so we sometimes put prostate cancer in that group as well that there's too much investigation and treatment and the um, side effects of the treatment can leave people with lots of other problems that they might not have needed to have in the first place so i'll just quote you some figures so um, in this article by professor saunders at the university of wa um, she said that of every 1000 women aged 50 to 74 who followed the recommendations to be screened every two years over a period of 25 years she said eight lives would be saved while another eight women would be diagnosed and treated for a cancer that probably wasn't going to call them cause them any trouble 
And it's interesting because I have a personal experience of this because my sister had a, a breast cancer and she went to see one of the oncologists and the oncologist said to her, no, it's fine, you don't need any treatment, maybe a little bit of radiation. And she just thought, oh, maybe I'll get a second opinion on that. So she did see another oncologist who said, yes, no, let's give you some chemotherapy. And it was a very long and hard track for her. But I think if there's a mention of cancer, women are wanting chemotherapy. It's, they don't want to die. They, they, if there's something or any, any, any chance that um, you might... Um, be dying from this tumour or cancer that they want treatment and I think a lot of um, people there should be some more research in this area so that we can guide and steer women and reassure them that some of the tumours aren't going to be progressive and that they might be under this group called indolent cancers and certainly I think the and I know you're going to mention this Dr Nick about breast cancer screening which is mammograms and we were doing them rigorously every two years well I would have to say that through my reading and understanding and talking and to people in this area I've sort of personally and that might not be the advice for people listening um, but I've certainly dropped off my regular two years I might go three yearly for a mammogram and um, speak to my GP and uh, get some advice sort of about the timing but um, I'm very um, aware of this over-diagnosing of tumours in the breast. And there, there was a discussion when I worked in a breast cancer family study that um, that there was an epidemic of breast cancer, but then they found that it was over-diagnosing and calling these early, very, very minor tumours cancerous. And the anxiety that's associated with women and their families is enormous. And again, another friend of mine who's a pathologist at the Royal Melbourne was saying that out of maybe 10 breast biopsies a, a day, he only one or two of them might be significant. And so the anxiety and stress caused to those other women that are having... Um, workups for breast tumour analysis is quite scary so it's very counterintuitive isn't it to talk about cancer and being indolent and not requiring treatment this doesn't fit with our normal way of talking about cancer and it's not surprising that if you say to a woman oh you've got breast cancer don't do anything she's going to find that a very hard message to take away which as you correctly say is very similar with the whole argument about prostate cancer screening and blokes um, because we pick up a lot of prostate cancer and then say we don't need to treat it which is really really helpful isn't it um so 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 how how do you reassure patients and what what are your skills in the general practice you know oh what are my skills in this setting that's a very complicated question unfortunately we're almost out of time to answer it but what i would say which is i think an incredibly important one is that screening programs are not the perfect thing we tend to think that they are um again to 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 end on the positive note um i believe that there's enough evidence that regular mammography is worth doing that for most women 50 plus or with a strong family history of breast cancer they should be encouraged still to have regular mammograms but the benefit isn't as great as we hoped it would be. It's not like cervical cancer screening, well proven and an absolute must in my view. Uh, and we, correctly as you say, we, uh, we need more information. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And now to clear up some matters for us, we have Dr. Moto. Thanks for coming in, Dr. Moto. What are you talking to us about today? Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Well, it dawned on me that we're having a very sombre um, Mother's Day uh, session, and I think it's completely coincidental. Um, so I wanted to end uh, with something that's maybe a little bit more hope uh, in uh, evoking. Yes, please. So, being an avid Triple R listener, um, I was listening, I was tuned into the program on the way here, and um, I heard uh, one of the Radio Marinara speakers talking about her research in um, um, marine biology in um, northeastern Japan. Now, I'd just come back from the College Congress being held um, over the past week in Brisbane, and uh, one of the more interesting presentations I came across, actually, was um, a Japanese psychiatrist talking about child psychoeducation after the Great East Japan earthquake. 
And as we all know, so on um, Friday, the 11th of March, 2011, the most powerful earthquake hit Japan, just um, off the coast of uh, um, the northeast um, boundary of the Honshu, the uh, main island. And um, it's the fourth most powerful earthquake um, ever since recording began around the world in 1900. Mm-hmm. And lots and lots of people have lost their homes and um, their livelihood, um, belongings, and obviously um, family members. So um, this research was being done um, by a, a psychiatrist and his team in um, a city called Sendai, um, which is also the uh, place where um, one of the previous uh, show's presenters uh, did her research, um, in Miyagi Prefecture. And um, what they did was they took um, children who have either um, lost their homes, lost family members, or witnessed the tsunami and arranged um, outdoor activities and camps with them. And during these um, activities and, and the camping, um, they um, provided two main Interventions, which I thought was really interesting. So one was um, using a traditional Japanese toy, which was a sort of a plastic blowpipe, and the aim is it, you sort of hold it into hold it in your mouth as you would like a Sherlock Holmes pipe, and when you blow into it slowly and steadily, a little ball would rise up into the air. And the idea is to sort of maintain that. So they actually use that blowpipe toy to try to teach um, slow deep breathing exercises which I thought was very interesting. And um, also the main instigator came up with this uh, cartoon character called Koro-chan. Um, so uh, Koro is short for Kokoro, which in Japanese means heart. And uh, Chan is a, is a sort of a, um, suffix um, that the Japanese put behind their names as a term of endearment. So, you know, as opposed to Nik-san, um, san being the sort of honorific term, um, Nik-chan would be sort of like an affectionate term. So they had this little cartoon character called um, Koro-chan, and the children were uh, asked to draw their version of the Koro-chan. Um, in Western um, child uh, psychiatric practices, we are very well... Um, uh, aware of uh, using art therapy and narrative therapy um, for children to express themselves who might be v- um, lacking the verbal um, integrity to speak it um, and, and narrate it um, as an adult would. So using drawing, using play to sort of um, understand where children are coming from. But what I found um, quite heartening in this presentation was um, someone using a very um, culturally appropriate, I suppose, um, uh, um, sort of a caricature to encourage children to express their feelings um, and obviously sort of practice um, you know deep breathing exercises when it comes to sort of horrific or an- anxiety provoking memories of um, this disaster and uh, sorry to interrupt but I'm, I'm just getting that slightly creepy feeling of all these poor children who've been through this horrible experience and some researchers have wandered in and start practicing some science on them um, was there a kind of control group and an intervention group where they were testing some hypothesis what what were they actually doing with these kids there wasn't a control group from what i could understand um i think they didn't want to withhold the um intervention from um, children who could potentially really benefit from it um so what they did was um they recruited 124 children and um and uh, you know, provided uh, this sort of a free um, up camping exercise and helped these children to sort of recover um, from um, the, the the tsunami and the earthquake. Um, it's interesting um, thinking about physiologically. If you can teach a child to have a calming breath, then you're already intervening in, you know, we, I talked about that fragmented part of experience that's associated with trauma before. So if a child is aroused, and that is that they're in a panic state constantly, to be able to practice in a playful way a calming breath through the use of this instrument does a number of things at once, doesn't it? It, it gives physiologically, gives the brain and the, you know, the child, let's think about it as a child, not just a brain, but a message that of calmness, of being safe, um, of playfulness, fun, so all of those things that are actually important to children in getting new information that says the danger is past. And so I think there's many ways in which we can begin to understand some of those interventions, which we know work. Um, EMDR also has um, um, an uh, 
an organisation or a, um, a movement called um, Humanitarian Assistance Program that has gone into countries across the world after major disasters and um, taught local caregivers local health professionals and directly to um, the population themselves, children and adults, um, versions of EMDR to assist in processing the trauma at that time so that we don't get the long-term problems that are associated with these populations after significant trauma like an earthquake. But I know there has been some critique of international efforts taking a Western cultural psychiatric approach. For instance, after the Boxing Day tsunami in Indonesia, um, there was a lot of criticism that I read about going in researchers diagnosing PTSD in a population where that word never actually existed beforehand and almost re-traumatising people by creating a diagnostic category that hadn't previously been part of their culture and then imposing treatments that are westernised and not culturally appropriate. Um, Dr Murta, any thoughts about about that critique? I think it's a very timely um, discussion, you know, and I'm mindful that we only have a few minutes left, but um, I'm particularly um, thinking about uh, the um, tragic um, earthquake that has um, hit Kathmandu with the um, you know six thousand plus um, casualties. Um, I do agree to some extent that um, to sort of uh, you know storm in there and start diagnosing people with psychiatric labels and um, thinking um, that we know what's best for them is really hubris. Um, I think for um, a lot of uh, disaster survivors, um, in the immediate term, all they really want to do is just feel safe. And safety doesn't just necessarily come from talking, which, as we know, psychologists and psychiatrists are very, very good at doing. But um, they just want food and water and, and, water mm. and, and shelter. And, and they want to know where their loved ones are. You know, and sometimes that's the, um, that, that forms, I guess, part of the psychological first aid that we're talking about. Um, and um, really just sort of open communication and trying to um, not encourage people to process this trauma in the immediate phase, you know, which uh, um, during the Black um, Saturday fires um, was um, something that, uh, you know, um, support groups kept uh, wanting to persevere with. And, you know, um, the jury is still out about uh, whether um, immediate critical incident stress debriefing is indicated or not, or actually it actually does more harm than good. Um, I'm mindful of uh, this one um, particular landmark um, meta-analysis that was um, done in 2002, I think it was, um, where basically they found um, very little... Uh, long-lasting or immediate efficacy um, from um, immediate debriefing straight after the critical incident um, and in some cases it actually did more harm than good. It's one of the things that makes me a little bit nervous every time you see a news report about some major disaster and there's usually a rider somewhere saying teams of psychologists are being flown in and I think, oh my God, are they? What are they doing to these people? They need blankets and loved ones and, as you say, food and shelter um, but not necessarily lots of talking and, and debriefing. And, and support to their natural networks. Mm-hmm. That's where healing and safety comes from, from those relationships and you need to support those in being able to take care of each other. I think mental health professionals um, can certainly provide and advocate for that. So I think there is still a role for um, um, psychological first aid providers and mental health care providers to um, uh, work in disaster-struck areas. Um, I guess um, what I'm being a little bit furtive about um, is uh, to sort of take the Western model and putting people on medications and forcing them to process the trauma. That, I think, is um, going to be counterintuitive. Yeah, it always gets me nervous when I hear a psychiatrist talking about being furtive. But there we are, you heard it here on Triple R. That's all we have time for on Radiotherapy. I'd like to thank EpiPen, Dr Jenny and Dr Murta very much for their time. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful Mother's Day and we'll have you back next week. La grosse radio pour des grands enfants. Triple R FM. Big radio for big kids, is that right? All right, okay. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.